Hey there, welcome to Sales Unbound, brought to you by Sales Group. I'm your host, Anna Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business success. And today with me is Bernard Juan, who is a co-founder of ClearScope, the best-in-class SEO content optimization platform that drives search traffic. They're bootstrapped, very rapidly growing, and have over a thousand customers, including Adobe, Shopify, HubSpot, you name it. And uh, well, we are here to learn how you did it. So Bernard, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Thanks so much for the awesome introduction, Nadena. Happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you got my surname right. Yes. Okay, yes. good. Uh, <laughs> cool. Uh, all right. Well, let's get to you. So uh, tell us about your background, how you decided that, you know, SEO is something you want to do and uh, how ClearScope uh, began. Yeah. Yeah. So ClearScope began as a small passion project from a search engine optimization agency that my business partner and I created seven, eight years ago. At, at this point, we were in Silicon Valley and doing a lot of search engine optimization consulting for fast growing companies like Strava, AllTrails, DoorDash, that kind of stuff. And we stumbled upon this idea where we would use natural language processing to inform whether or not a piece of content looked good. At the time, NLP, natural language processing, wasn't that big of a thing. And we had conducted an experiment or two where we used Alchemy API at the time to make sure that the landing page of a website looked comprehensive and we saw some extraordinary results. So it only made sense to take what we found, bootstrap it into a profitable software as a service known as ClearScope. And fast forward to today, we, we do millions in revenue, service thousands of customers. And I'm not going to say the rest is history because we're still in the process of making history happen, but we've come a long way and we got a long way still left to go. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, that's a, that's a very inspiring, you know, fast forward. Uh, but again, you're one of those founders that make it sound way too easy. You know, I had a, I had a guest who was like, okay, so we were bored and instead of going and play bowling, we, uh, created this app. And now we're millionaires and everything's great. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of like it. So let's, let's dig into, you know, the day-to-day -day operations. First of all, you decided to bootstrap it, right? But you're in Silicon Valley. Why not go to, to the VCs? And especially eight years ago, I think that would be a no brainer. Yeah. I think that you hear a lot of horror stories from people who have taken funding from investors, right? People that are like, we were doing something, we took the investment and then we, we got screwed because, you know, we needed to evolve to be this like much bigger thing to meet or grow into the valuations that the VCs kept pushing on us. And so when we were first getting started, the idea was really simple, but Probably more interestingly, the total addressable market of what we were doing appeared to be fairly small. 
So that's kind of where we said, okay, you know, at the top end of the market, you you have Hrefs, SEMrush as these like all-in-one SEO platform tools, and their valuations, you know, at the time maybe were half a billion to a billion dollars tops. So you can imagine we're operating or building something within the ecosystem of search engine optimization now called content optimization but all in all the addressable market seemed pretty small as in maybe we would get 20 to 50 million dollars in like um like annual revenue and that's kind of where we felt we would cap out so if we went and we raised money you can imagine right if we're raising at a 10 million 20 million 50 million dollar valuation we're already basically at what maybe the the market can support so we decided okay well instead of having to have the pressures of trying to grow into a platform you know an enterprise suite to continue to expand and you know capture more market we would prefer the freedom and flexibility of staying bootstrapped and really just using you know customer revenue as investments into continuing to build the company. That's very interesting. So um, what did you do? Like, let's get to, I don't know, the earlier days, maybe. Uh, so what was the first step in trying to push it to the market? Did you do any research or is it just, you know, heads down, just building the best platform out there? Oh, you know, my co-founder and I, we were bored. And instead of going bowling, no, I'm kidding. Um, so, yeah, we we got heads down. And I think we had a lot of advantages to, to start, which was the fact that we were both based in San Francisco or Silicon Valley. And we were both plugged into the Y Combinator 500 startups and venture capital ecosystem. And... To a large degree, we had built a reputation for being great at search engine optimization and being referred to a lot of these different funds. So you might ask, okay, well, how did you even get there? Since you know that's sort of a an interesting background that I think a lot of people don't start with. And that is to say that before that, I've always was entrepreneurial all my life. So I've always known that I wanted to start a company to really, you know, make an impact on society, on business, and really to do well. And so early on, I was always hustling, whether that was playing online poker and buying a restaurant with the money that I made in college, or starting a, a board game and epically failing, or you know, trying a variety of different startups beforehand, all of which basically failed. What I ended up doing was admitting to myself that I didn't really know anything about startups, technology, you know, running a successful business. So in 2013, two or three years after I had graduated college, I moved out to San Francisco to join a Y Combinator back startup at the time. And that was called 42 Floors. At 42 Floors, it was this awesome paradise where you basically worked with, I worked with the smartest people ever 
and we were just solving solving problems and that's kind of where i started to understand that a lot of the magic of silicon valley is due to the fact that there's a high density of very talented smart hardworking people who are armed with money from venture capitalists and if you put those things together you tend to get potentially extraordinary outcomes to to happen right Long story short, though, I I became the go-to search engine optimization person within the company, and then once I left, I became kind of the go-to search engine optimization consultant for Y Combinator because people would post in their forum in Bookface like, "Hey, I'm looking for SEOs," and the the founders of Forty Two Floors really always just like pimped me out. Like, ah, well, you got to talk with Bernard. You know, he did RSEO and if you Google San Francisco office space or NYC office space, you'll see us as like rank one. So he's your guy. And that's to say that that's the value of, of network, right? If you're non-technical like myself, you, you really have to be the sales success, support, marketing business development partnership person to really bring value to the table. And I was able to shortcut a lot of the the networking required because I joined a Y Combinator startup. I left a good impression and they they really liked me. So I think that was the foundation of you know how we ended up doing SEO consulting, which then translated into the bootstrap software that we started. Okay. How did you go from the idea to to your first customer? Yeah. So first customer, I distinctly remember my co-founder was heads down building out the MVP of our application. And I was heads down doing the conventional startup, lean startup methodology. So my business partner and I had put together this deck, this presentation that basically walked people through the problem, right? Which was, okay, how do you know that the content that you're producing is high quality, meeting the needs of the searcher, and um, you know, gonna rank on, on Google? And back in that day, it was, pretty hit or miss, right? People would hire a bunch of writers. Some of them would know how to write for SEO and their content would just magically appear in the top spots on Google. And some of them didn't. And it was this very like haphazard process. So our solution was to say, okay, you can evaluate the quality of content as it's being written by making sure that it's including the relevant concepts or entities that it should include. And I had this deck and I would basically go around and I would try to get coffee with a bunch of SEOs at different companies. My, my outreach strategy was, nope, uh, we just had a, I just had a presentation. <laughs> so I would email these, these um, SEO practitioners at like Atlassian, Optimizely, Dropbox, Credit Karma, you name it, Silicon Valley probably has it. And I would just say something like fellow SEO in San Francisco looking to like swap war stories. 
So if you're familiar with search engine optimization, it's a, a zero-sum game in the sense that if I'm winning in personal finance, then Credit Karma, who's also interested in personal finance, is losing, right, if I'm the top spots. So it's kind of a behind-the-door sort, of, um, sort of ecosystem where you don't want to openly share what's working for your, your organization. You kind of want to trade notes behind closed doors. And so the body then of the, the email was something like, hey, I'm Bernard. You know, I've done consulting for DoorDash, Strava, all trails, you know, these notable companies that, you know, you can admire for their SEM. And I'd love to trade war stories, see what's working for you and get advice on this product idea that I'm thinking about. And yeah, I mean, it wasn't great in terms of like the response rates, but I was able to book something like 10, 10 to 20 meetings from, from that just cold outreach stuff. And so I'd meet up with the person at a coffee shop, we'd talk, we'd trade some notes. I would give them some cool gray hat, like ideas that had been working for me at the time, just to build rapport. And then, and I'd be like, okay, this is what I'm thinking about in terms of a product, bring out the deck, go through the, the problem statement. And then at the end, it, it had the slide that had like, for $500 a month, like you can get access to this tool, something like that. And of course, of course, you, I mean, you know, like you're supposed to collect the money before anything even gets built. Um, and that was like what I was trying to do, but nobody, nobody would give me money. Um, not, like, not like that, right? I was like, oh, okay. So if we built this and we charge you $500, would you buy it? And the most common response that I would get back would be like, no, no, you're like, you know, someone actually also went out of their way to tell me that they like, I was out of my mind because they were like, oh, wow. well, you know, I pay SEM rush or Ahrefs like 80 bucks a month. It used to be cheaper back in the day. Um, and they do 20 times more than what you are proposing that you're going to do for, you know, basically like five to six times less money. Like you're out of your mind. There's nobody that would pay that amount for that. And so after, you know, kind of getting rejected with that like last slide being like 500 bucks a month, I just decided to take it out. I was like, okay, I'm gonna remove this because um, clearly that's, that's not the right price point or maybe I'm not pitching it correctly or whatever. Um, but so once I removed that last slide, you can imagine I have these 10 to 20 conversations through cold outreach, and then I have another 20 to 30 conversations through just my like own network. And by then, you know, you probably have like five to 10 people of the 50 people that I spoke with while the product was being built, um, that were like, sure. Yeah, that seems like a cool idea again. Right, I had removed now like the pricing. And so the MVP comes out, it's like ready to, to start being adopted. And I go back to these five to 10 people and I'm like, all right, it's here, you know, like buy it. And then basically everyone was like, nope, nope. Or they ignored me. I'm like, nope, that's not gonna work. 
Um, but there was this one company, which was our first company and still a customer of ours today, um, which came from a friend's, um, so it was my friend's boss who was an angel investor in this media company. And so you can imagine, right, I'm like literally scrambling to just ask anybody that I know who would potentially buy the software to buy this gosh darn software. And the angel investor was like, kicked it over to the, his portfolio company and was like, you should check this out. And, you know, in Silicon Valley, that's actually one of the easiest ways to get you know, a, a product into the hands of a customer is when the venture capital list or the angel investor that gave you money is saying, hey, check this out. Because then you're like, okay, well, you know, you gave me the money and if you want me to spend it yeah, here, then, you know, it's all good. So I remember, I think, you know, they signed up. It was, maybe it was $99 a month. Maybe it was $200 a month, um, right? And, you know, it came with... And well, not 500, no. And, and we, we, didn't, we couldn't even collect money at that time. Like Stripe was just, I think, getting like off the ground. Payments were like pretty, pretty hard to like do. I remember issuing them an invoice from our like accounting software and saying, here's this invoice for like $99. You got to pay it. Like, and then, you know, let's schedule the onboarding for like December, like 12th show up and and you know my my business partner scrambling to make this like software come together like at the last minute because i'm like hey we got a customer i've issued an invoice you know they're probably gonna pay it but i don't know um we're kicking off and he's like okay i'm, I'm going and then it was like a friday afternoon i like get in there and i'm like trying to onboard them to our software and it just doesn't work <laughs> it's just like <laughs> Like the something's com completely broken, and I remember our the person who was buying it. Her name was Shannon. She's so sweet about it. She was like, "Oh well, you know what? It's Friday afternoon. I I wasn't really gonna like work on this anyway. So why don't you just get it fixed, and then we can kind of talk like early next week." And so yeah, that was that was the the story of how we landed our, our first customer, right? We stitched together this MVP. I really went out and tried to do the whole lean customer development thing, like pre-selling the product. And um, yeah, our first launch with our first customer ever was as, as much of a failure as you can imagine. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, just like you sneaked in that slide with $500 offer, you sneaked in, uh, you know, we made an MVP. So all the time while you were selling, an MVP was building. So uh, how did you do it? Like, what was the tech stack? What was the, uh, what could this first version of the product do? Yeah, so the tech stack, we are on Ruby on Rails. So very developer-friendly, small team-focused um, ecosystem, and also really fast to get, you know, initial skeletons of applications up. So the what the thing could do to start is that you would basically 
be writing content about a specific topic or in SEO speak, we'd call it a keyword. And so let's say, for example, you know, you and I want to create a piece of content on the best credit cards. Well, in our system, you could go in and you could type in best credit cards. And then what we would do is we'd go to Google, we would perform the search, get back a bunch of search results, scrape the top 30 search results for, you know, best credit cards, use natural language processing to understand what these pieces of content we're talking about. And then we would generate this like list of like recommendations of concepts that the piece of content should include based off of what we saw ranking in Google search. So you can imagine the output for best credit cards will come back and say things like American Express, MasterCard, Visa, right? And then basically you could put your piece of content in this like text editor and click like click a button that's like analyzed. And then it would go through and it'd be like, hey, you didn't say American Express. Like it would give you a list of unused terms like Chase Sapphire Reserve and, you know, airline miles and hotel points and whatever. And say, hey, you didn't say these. So that means that you should probably go back to your piece of content and add them in because that'll be a more like comprehensive piece of content. <laughs> Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate or customer referral program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Lock your customer acquisition cost and only pay based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Rewardful automatically tracks referrals, calculates commissions, handles upgrades and downgrades all seamlessly in the background, whether you sell one-off purchases or recurring subscriptions. Companies like Podia, Copy.ai, Barometrics, Synthesia, and many, many more are already using Rewardful to add that sweet, sweet MRR to their businesses. Sign up now at Rewardful.com for a free 14-day trial and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Yeah, so uh, one thing that um, you know I noticed about, especially when we talk about MVPs on, on the podcast, is that uh, a lot of people that launched, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, um, say that you know back then it was a bit easier to to just sneak into the market with a very simple solution because there were not too many of them. So yeah. looking back. Uh, like if, if you were building now, would that kind of solution still be um, okay now? Would you be able to use it and, and push it to customers, push it to market? Or now um, founders are kind of pushed into presenting a more comprehensive MVPs just to go to market? Yeah, I think uh, Rand Fishkin, he was the founder of Moz which in the SEO space was a very big community with software as a service uh, bolted on was basically how I learned SEO. I think he had a very good point specifically about this, where 10 years ago, the world of software as a service, mobile applications, web applications as we know it, was a lot less crowded 
than it is today. And back then, right, if we're talking about lean customer methodology, it was way more acceptable to show up with a PowerPoint presentation and try to ask somebody for $500 and perhaps even like, you know, swipe a credit card on like a square reader just to like, you know, prove that you could pre-sell uh, a product or service because there were just a lot fewer companies that were doing that and startups tech was just not as cool as it really is today. In today's landscape, oh my God, if you've seen a modern day like updated matrix of like, you know, MarTech software and like email market, it's just exploding, right? With all these different providers in each specific category because the cost of launching a, a SaaS is lower, cheaper than it's ever been. The frameworks, right, that we use, like React, Angular, Ruby on Rails, these are like more fleshed out than they've ever been. And there are, you know, oodles and oodles of people who are studying computer science in college as we know it, because, you know, there's this whole tech gold rush that has happened over the last like 10 years. So nowadays, what he, what Rand was saying is that you can't just have a minimal viable product. You need an exceptional viable product to start. And I more or less agree um, with that sentiment. If you're trying to get into software as a service, as you probably know, right, which is your traditional like web application, you know, monthly subscription costs, all that stuff, the cost of acquiring a new customer these days is really insane. And a lot of platforms will all do more or less the same thing. And to really bring a product to market, it's, it's very difficult to, to stand out and get people to adopt yet another tool because we've already just inundated with all of the different tools that they're already using and are familiar with. So that's to say that if we're talking about SaaS and, you know, we're on the SaaS Unbound podcast, then it's, it is a different world than, you know, when I was going around with a presentation and you, you need a lot more substance to bring to the table for somebody to go, oh, you know what? Sure. You know, let me buy that. It's like the product almost needs to be like, really polished, really good. You need like a case study or two. And then somebody be like, okay, I'm willing to try that. Now, where I think that this approach that I did say eight years ago still applies is in new industries, new technologies, right? Like people will use the jankiest looking thing with their MetaMask on the Ethereum blockchain, right? And they'll get scammed because, right, it's such a nascent industry. So, I guess the analogy that I'm trying to make here is that when you want to bootstrap or produce a SaaS business, you're really producing a SaaS business in the like Manhattan, like real estate, right? There is very small, it's very crowded and it's very expensive to participate. Whereas, right, something, let's say a newer technology or newer industry like Web3, blockchain, you know, that's that's not necessarily as like paven as what the SaaS ecosystem is today. Right. So what's exciting today? What would you use if 
say you decided to build a new business, would you still go to, to custom um, custom code or maybe use some some frameworks? Yeah, I mean, we use, we try to use as much like off the shelf frameworks as as we can. Like, why why reinvent the the wheel? So, yeah, I think that it really depends on you know what what industry and what niche you're you're really trying to get into and you know what those ideal customer profiles and target personas really care about when they're purchasing your your software and you know if it's something where polish user experience isn't as important then i think you know you can skip those or else i think that you know the majority of people would expect a fairly good looking you know marketing website with like fairly reasonable like pricing but i don't think i would do it differently if i were to start today i think it would be exactly the same idea except now i have a much more established network and i also have a lot more experience selling early early stage software and understanding kind of the nuances of why it's not necessarily working um so to like build off that point I remember early on during our ClearScope early days where, you know, I was trying to sell the software and I was like walking home from work after after a long day of being rejected. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, man, this this sucks. <laughs> this sucks a lot. I hate this. But then I was like, okay, but what do I hate? And basically when it comes to, to sales, right, it's like being rejected is one thing but being able to like parse that out to say okay i was rejected because i was talking to the wrong person like these people are just not the right people or i'm not saying the right things or i'm not selling you know the right value propositions but um yeah i think that then you start to learn like okay you know rejection is really just simply a, a step to understanding you know how to succeed, how <laughs> uh, to move forward. And, you know, I think that's, um, you know, it's a hard, hard lesson to, to learn, but I would do pretty much the same thing starting out right. today. Okay. Oh, just yesterday I was reading um, Seth Godin, Godin's book um, and it, um, and I, I stopped at this moment when uh, he was talking about the fact, you know, why potential customers say no to you and why they are right. Uh, you know, why it's absolutely okay to say no, why, why it's okay to be rejected. Uh, okay, so uh, let's let's get back to, you know, day-to-day -day operations, ClearScope. Uh, from the MVP, um, let's get to your growth stage, how you went uh, to scaling. Uh, at what point you realized that, you know, we're growing people are adopting the technology, you know, people love us and we get the bigger and bigger customers. They are paying us even $500 and they're okay. With <laughs> yeah. So I know, you know, for those of you in, in SaaS and startup, you probably have read or at least know of Paul Graham, who is the founder of Y Combinator. And you've also probably heard of, you know, Mark Andreessen, who's known for coining the term product market fit. So product market fit is this magical moment in your software as a service where things just start working. 
And I guess metaphorically speaking, the, the best way that I can describe it is that for the life of the company up until product market fit, it really feels like you're like pushing this big, massive boulder like up this mountain. And when you have product market fit, the boulder just starts rolling down <laughs> is how it feels. So I think that there, that's one definition of product market fit. But I think that there are two ways that people generally achieve product market fit. Number one is by inventing something new, right? Like this didn't exist before. I think it should exist. Therefore, I shall build it and, you know, hope that I'm right. Um, and then there's the other way to do product market fit, which is that this does exist already. But, you know, I think that I can execute on it better and go after customers and acquisition just like in a more budget friendly way than my competition. And so therefore I will build it and I know that people care about it. So I think you need to be like very self-conscious about which area that you fall into, right? If you're like building another website builder or another like payment collection platform, it's not like you're doing anything new, right? You know, people want to build websites and collect money online. It's just that how do you do it better than Shopify, Squarespace, and Stripe? And so, you know, in that particular sense, you do not have a product market fit problem. You have a customer acquisition and unit economic problem and product feature set problem, right? How do you build something that's like, okay, websites for dentists that, you know, they're willing to pay four times more money for, therefore you can outspend you know, Squarespace on their acquisition strategy targeting dentists and therefore, you know, like establish uh, a better moat there. So that's like one way of doing, you know, product market fit, totally good, totally, you know, acceptable. And then the other one is like, okay, well, this doesn't exist currently, right? Like AI before uh, chat GPT was basically non-existent. And now there's this new technology and everyone's like, oh my God, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna do this. Um, so being very clear about, you know, which, which alley or realm you're, you're operating in, I think is, is very important because if you're basically trying to grow and scale the like established market, it's a way different strategy than if you're trying to grow and scale something that people are like, the market is like basically new and evergreen and, and that, that sort of, not evergreen, but just a new field, new green field of opportunity. So for us, we were lucky in the sense that we, we caught on to an early trend within natural language processing, within search engine optimization. So when we started, we were one of a handful of tools on the market, which meant that as market awareness and adoption for this product category really blossomed, we were one of a handful of companies to really benefit from just this like expansion of, you know, greenfield stuff, which again, I don't think is necessarily the more like common way to like do product market fit. Um, but it's, we were, we were certainly in new category creation where I would run around and I'd be like, Oh yeah, this is like semantic SEO and people will be like, huh, what's that?
And then I'd be like, okay, this is like topical search. And some people would be like, huh? What's that? And nowadays, it's called content optimization software. But you can imagine back then, I was trying to figure out like what, what the hell you know, we were even selling because there was no category for, for it. Um, so yeah, that's to say that when you're in that and you catch a wave, like the growth and scale part is, is like a boulder just rolling down the hill. <laughs> like people find out, like say NVIDIA, Deloitte, IBM, and they're like, wow, that's cool. Nobody else does it. I like what I see. And then they just walk in and they're like, where can I sign up? <laughs> um, I mean, yes. Right, exactly. Of course, there's like more nuances to that where you need case studies and you need to fill out, you know, compliance and you need to do the dog and pony right. show, like showcasing the product. But it's literally was pretty much as simple as, as that. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we were early, we were right, and we were one of a handful of tools on the market that, that did it. And so people would, you know, shop around and be like, okay, well, this ClearScope thing looks great. So we put a lot of emphasis on, um, like, polish, like user experience, right? If you Googled ClearScope, we would fill out the Captera, the G2, with, like, five-star reviews, and overall, right, it was like, okay, I mean, there's only two other tools that do this. So when people were like searching around, there was, it was pretty easy to like differentiate and stand out. And um, yeah, that, that's, and then we put a lot of emphasis on the marketing website, making sure that that looked great on case studies to obviously make sure that we have the social proof. And, and then we just, did a bunch of demos and a lot of kickoff calls and had a heavy focus on customer success and a great product experience after the fact. And I know it sounds simple and <laughs> when I say it, um, but yeah, that was it. We just made sure that people who adopted the tool found success and that, you know, the product would keep evolving as the needs of our customers evolved with, with the product. Right. And you mentioned that, you know, sometimes people would not know what you what you're talking about. So that uh, that means that there is a bit of an educational uh, point involved. And I feel like every time uh, it is there, it makes it just so much more difficult for a startup to to take off. So how did you basically get to teach people what you're doing? Yeah. Yeah. I basically made sure that everybody who signed up for our software talked to me. <laughs> I did thousands of kickoff calls and I, I just, yeah, I was like, Hey, like, it's important that you do this kickoff call with me because chances are you're probably not thinking about search engine optimization in this like newer way. And so, yeah, basically anytime anybody signed up, I'd set them on this like aggressive, like, you know, email sequence. I was like, hey, kickoff call. And then, you know, if they didn't respond, they'd be like, hey, like, yeah, I'd really recommend doing this kickoff call. And then right, like respond, they'd be like, hey, like, you know, you're losing out if you don't take this kickoff call with me. And, you know, most people were like pretty open-minded early adopters. So, so they did. 
and I would, you know, like do some stuff, show them like how, you know, we were thinking about SEO. It worked really well. And um, yeah, that was that was how how we went about doing it. Okay. All right. Well, I feel like uh, we we need uh, a few more episodes to just uh, go over all the questions in my head that I have now. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so I'll I'll be I'll be sending you very aggressive emails to come again. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I mean. You know, I'm from South Group, so I, I have to ask that because this is something uh, that that's very interesting, like how um, founders approach that, right? Uh, do you build um, a startup with an exit in mind? Uh, do you know that you're bootstrapping it to a certain point to eventually sell it or partially sell it or eventually go to the VCs uh, for that hyper growth um, stage? So how did you uh, approach that for, for the ClearScope? Did you know that this is a dependable software that you're building that you want to do for 10, 15, 20 years? Or is it something that you think, okay, maybe a couple more and then um, let's step aside? Yeah, honestly, I my business partner and I, when we first got started, we said, we want to build a small, bootstrapped, profitable business. And funny thing is, when when you get there, you realize that, like, okay, you want more? We want more. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we, we were three people to, you know, mil millions in, in revenue. And then we, like, tacked on a fourth because I I got so tired of doing all these demos and onboardings. I just couldn't couldn't do it. I was just very sick of doing it. I burnt out for like a couple of years where I just really couldn't drive any like new initiatives forward because, you know, my days were more something between like six to ten meetings where, you know, I was like the the main entree of, you know, those those calls, right? Because I'd be doing the demos and I'd be doing the onboardings and, and I'd be setting off these like email sequences. So between meetings, I have a stack of like emails and it was it was pretty, pretty uh, nasty. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when we started, we said, yeah, we want a small bootstrap profitable business. And I think that the small part of it kind of caught us off guard in that, if we had just decided to like, you know, really like scale and, and like hire the right people and, you know, start elevating ourselves as like owner managers instead of owner operators earlier, I think we could be in a much more like dominant position than we are now. Now, the flip side of that is that as a small bootstrap profitable business, you know, the, um, the money has been, has been pretty good, right? But that's to say that you know, in a lot of ways, when we got successful, the funny thing is, is that like, I just, I just got like fat, complacent and sad. <laughs> That's like what, what ended up happening. It was like, there was not as much to fight for. Um, you know, like there was just not, it wasn't like a challenge as much. And so, yeah, I mean, that's to say, you know, we're we're back in it our heads are back in the game 
And we, we know that bigger is better, right? Bigger as in terms of more revenue is always better. And as a bootstrapped SaaS, we have the flexibility of having a lot of different like exit paths, right? One of them would be sell the private equity or something like that. Number two could be, okay, turn it into, you know, a sustainable lifestyle business where we, we just, you know, ink out, ink out good cash flows. We prevent as much churn as possible. And everybody, you know, like say works very nice hours. And then, you know, like the last part is that maybe, you know, we do like a combination of, of becoming like SaaS group or something like that, where we buy smaller tools in the ecosystem, you know, kind of play the whole digital, digital real estate, like flipping game ourselves. Or, you know, I guess we could IPO as well, but you know, it's, you got all of the options like in front of you. And all that I know is that as a bootstrap SaaS, like, you know, owner, that we want to be above 10 million in annual recurring revenue because that, that basically, um, open unlocks all like a lot more doors in terms of, okay, if we wanted to sell the private equity, it's a lot more like of a, a good opportunity. If we want it to, you know, say play the micro acquisition game by buying and selling, we have a lot more cash flow that you can work with. And if we, you know, wanted to, to just run a nice lifestyle business, then, you know, that obviously that amount of capital or cash flow is um, really, really quite nice. Super interesting. You're not the first founder that talks about that magical number of uh, 10 million ARR. Uh, so, and that's something that circulates around social media a lot. Like, uh, do not ever think about selling or going to, to VCs unless you have that 10 million because it's, it's no longer 2010. Uh, you know, you need a lot more uh, cash flow. Otherwise, you know, you will be left with absolutely nothing once it sells. And um, yeah, so um, I guess that's, uh, that's a very, uh, that's a very smart approach, very, very sustainable. So one more is, um, would you share an actionable advice for, um, for SaaS businesses that want to grow, that want to maybe find um, um, go to market strategy or market fit. Uh, so what was your, I don't know, aha moment that just I don't know, made it all possible or made it all simpler for you? Maybe even yeah. in your burnout uh, situation, <laughs> how to um, avoid it. <laughs> how to avoid it. Yeah, I think we can, we could separate this into like two, two distinct parts. I think number one is case studies, testimonials, social proof. Like when you're going on in an early stage, like sort of way, people, when they think about adopting a product or a solution or a service in the back of their head, one of the biggest risks is whether this company is going to be around six months from now, six years from now, right? Because Ultimately, people are buying your software or your solution because they have, you know, a, a problem that they, they need to, to fix in their day-to-day -day at work. 
if we're talking about B2B um, SaaS. So essentially, right, this is like some feedback that I got early on when I was pitching a mega like company. The point of contact was like, he pulled me aside. He was like, hey, you know, we did a pilot. It succeeded immensely. And he was like, I want to buy your software, but the higher ups, the suits, if you will, they won't let me. And I was like, why? And he was like, because we don't know if you're going to be around one year from now. And if we integrate this into, you know, our, our workflow and you go out, well, we just spent a lot of like resources and effort and, you know, that was a waste of time. So a lot of buyers are basically, you know, kind of thinking that in the back of their head, right? When I'm like adopting, you know, early stage stuff that friends or friends of friends are, are like building, like, that's what I'm thinking about. I'm like, can I depend on you? Like two years from now, like I, you might be out of business. Um, so I think really focusing on like building out case studies and having like references and like social proof early on was just a big like light bulb moment, right? We could say, okay, well you might have that, but look at what we did for company X. And if you want to talk with, you know, that person, I can connect you as like a reference and that kind of can at least help to, you know, assuage the concerns of your, your purchasers early on, because that's ultimately what a lot of them will be thinking, but not necessarily tell you. So that was like aha moment. Number one, um, aha moment. Number two, we'll just say is the conventional saying that everybody talks about when we're talking about, you know, founders working in the business versus on the business. And it's to say that if you really want to see scale and have good growth and, you know, maintain that, that growth trajectory, you need to get yourself out of the business and working on the business rather than working in the business as, as quickly as the unit economics will, will allow for. So I held on to that idea for so, so long that like, nobody can do it as good as me. You know, like I'm the only person that can, you know, do it. And it was like, you know, I'm like gripping this like mug, like death gripping it. My knuckles are turning white and, and I couldn't let go. I just could not let go of the, like the day to day. But nowadays, and it's still a work in progress. Don't get me wrong, but nowadays that's all that I'm like trying to think about, right? It's like, how can I let go, put the right people with the right systems and processes in place so that everything with the machine is, is functioning as, as it should. But I think as a bootstrap like founder, or maybe even a, you know, founder that raises some, some venture, you can get caught up in this idea that like, nobody can do it as good as I can. So therefore I should continue to do it. It's like that, that's just not a sustainable mindset whatsoever, unless your goal is to build a life cycle or life cycle lifestyle business and really not care about the growth and what competitors are doing and, and whatnot, which that's totally, totally fine. Totally up to you. But that's what I thought. And then 
as we as we grew and the market category grew, we saw a lot of competition and we were just hampered because we as the founders were doing all of the work and the competitors essentially have been investing a lot more in engineering, marketing and that kind of stuff. And it kind of shows in their ability to to really win over certain segments of, of the market. And that's where it really kicked me. I thought I wanted a small bootstrap profitable business, but actually what I want is to win <laughs> and crush the competition and really like do that. And so, yes, that could be in of itself, some kind of like moving goalpost problem and, and whatnot. But, um, yeah, it's to, to get out of the day to day and just really focus on, you know, how do you elevate the business without you being stuck in the day-to-day -day. right okay that's uh, that's amazing well i think that's a, that's a brilliant advice and uh definitely something uh to explore so just one more bonus question apart from clearscope what is this sales company that inspires you and you think is super cool maybe you would love to have shares in it someday what is a SaaS company that I think is super cool? Hmm. Um, yeah, I think my, my answer would be there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of really cool little niche softwares out there. I think for me, the one, the ones that are like interesting and really cool are, uh, like one password, right? Like who would have thought password management would be such, such big business. And, you know, they were even going to be like bought by Apple or potentially bought, but they're like, nah, you know, we're, we're good. So I'm like, oh my God, you know, that's cool. Um, I think this, this like screenshotting like thing that I use called clean shot, clean shot X is really cool. It like literally replaces what your Mac screenshotting, like normal stuff would be and it just adds like these like dynamic components where like when you screenshot something you can then click into it and like mark like you know point arrows draw boxes on it and then drag it in it just like adds that component where that's like what you want to do as a business to business SaaS like person is to like point arrows <laughs> at like screenshots and it's very specific and i think it's a very brilliant idea as well super simple um, so I think, you know, those, those are, are definitely the ones that, that come to mind. It's like kind of boring, kind of, you know, like not terribly interesting, but it's useful, right? It's useful. People love it. And, yeah. you know, I do think that there, there's a lot, a lot of business to be had doing boring thing, like doing things that people perceive to be boring and really, you know, offering a superb experience on screenshotting and password management, you know, that type of stuff. <laughs> Amen to that. I mean, uh, also a, a trend that's been around uh, on this podcast for a bit, uh, boring businesses are the best businesses. They are sustainable. They are here to for, for a long run. People love them. They are profitable. And the only thing they lack is, you know, this uh, cool founder um, 
perception, but you know, who cares when you know when you generate 10 million RR? Um, you know, it's a good business. Uh, so Definitely. yeah, thank you so much for for sharing that. It it's been amazing. I think that's the longest podcast ever. Uh, but, uh, but definitely, definitely feel like, uh, I do have more questions, but anyway, I'm not going to push just yet, <laughs> but, but expect me to reach out in the nearest future. So, uh, thank you, Bernard. It's been amazing talking with you and, uh, all the best with ClearScope. Thanks so much, Anna. Thank you. That was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders, and if you're one, reach out to me directly at anna at saas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS group, a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.